everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Uncap It. I'm Kennedy and I'm here with Haley. And today we are going to be talking about a very important topic. We will be talking about mental health and the laws and policies that are surrounding it. Yeah, I think this is a very long-awaited topic that I know I have been, I guess excited might not be the best word to describe, (laughs) but I have been eager to talk about. I think it's very important, especially because mental health is a topic that Gen Z cares a lot about. Yeah, I think it is long overdue that we're having an open conversation about Mm -hmm. mental health because our generation is very open about it and we are a lot more likely to talk about it than past generations. Right, and I think the biggest reason for that is because our age range is the most affected by mental illness. Right. So as of 2020, individuals ages 18 to 25, so those are, you know, your typical college-age students, a lot of the students that are here at ONU, you and I obviously fall in that range, have the highest prevalence of a mental illness with 30.6% of this group acknowledging they have one or more mental illnesses, which I think is significant, especially because a lot of people that have a mental illness either don't have a diagnosis or don't even know that they have it. Right. A lot of people are just dealing with it. Right. But because this is becoming a much more talked about issue, I think a lot more people are starting to go to therapy or get properly diagnosed with their mental health issues. Absolutely. So I know, especially for our generation, Haley and I were both seniors during the pandemic. And Personally, I know that that affected a lot of my friends and peers with their mental health. And I think the pandemic drastically increased the rates of mental health issues because we were spending so much time alone. And so many of our activities that we were used to were like quickly taken away. Yeah, it was just such a culture shock, I think. And everything changed all at once. And it was very hard for us to cope with it. I think... Obviously, it was hard for anyone of any age to cope with something as drastic as having to stay inside. Right. And like a worldwide pandemic with so much uncertainty. However, I think as teenagers, like we tend to thrive off of that social aspect of going to school and having our hobbies every day. So I think that's why we took such a big hit when it came to the pandemic. So the pandemic actually triggered a 25% increase in anxiety and depression worldwide. So among all age groups, all countries, there was just an overall increase in especially anxiety and depression, but other mental illnesses as well. Right. And one of those mental illnesses in teens specifically was eating disorders skyrocketed during the pandemic. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense because I know there's this misconception that eating disorders are just, like, wanting to change the way you look or completely Mm -hmm. related to food. But it is overwhelmingly just, like, it's a coping mechanism. And when you have that much uncertainty, it's common to want to cope in any way that you can find possible. Right. And with people that had mental illnesses prior to the pandemic – the pandemic just increased their rates of suicide and self-harm. So it created mental illness problems for some people and it worsened mental illness problems for others. So overall, it was having an impact on like everyone. Right. And I think that there are a lot of factors that that can be traced back to. Like we said, one of those would just be just the added stress of the pandemic in general. 
Right. And then as you talked about, there was that lack of like social life for for students. We weren't going to school anymore. And for adults, that meant not going to work unless you were an essential worker, like healthcare workers, doctors, and a bunch of other essential workers. Right. But it really just took that normalcy out of life. Yeah. And also it added that uncertainty about income. Right. Like, are you going to get paid if you're not working? How is that going to work? Are you still going to have a job? How long is this going to last? So I think, like we've talked about already, just the uncertainty of the pandemic was just such a big stressor, but also not going to work meant isolation. Right. And mental illnesses thrive in being isolated, so that obviously played a huge role as well. Especially if you were quarantined at any part during the pandemic because you either had COVID-19 or you were in contact. That meant you were even isolated from, like, your closest family members. Right. And so I think overall, people were just spending a lot more time alone during the pandemic. Yeah, and the final thing that probably played a role was just the gaps in care for people with mental illnesses. So you had to adjust your treatment based on the fact that we were in quarantine. Like, I think we forget that Zoom and telehealth appointments were not really a thing. And a lot of people who were going to therapy now had to go to therapy either over the phone or online. I know there was a bunch of like online therapy counseling centers that mm-hmm. opened and really helped people, but it's just a very big shift. And for some people, like having it virtually is not the same as right. being in person. Yeah, changing that environment, it will impact what you get out of the appointment. So. Also, it took time to get to that point where we could have telehealth appointments. So I'm sure that there was a break Mm -hmm. where you couldn't receive any treatment at all. Right. And so we've been focusing on how the pandemic has really affected mental health. But there's a lot of other factors that go into this. People had mental health issues before the pandemic. And now that the pandemic is coming to an end, we're getting back to a little bit of normalcy. These mental health illnesses are still on the rise. And so over the past couple of years, it's become very prevalent to try to find ways to help this, whether that's through treatment or through policies. So that's our main concern right now, now that we've had such a rise in mental health issues. Right. Yeah. So as you said, there's the traditional methods that most people talk about, medication, therapy, things like that. But you mentioned policies, and I think that's super important. We will get into that later with our guest, but that is going to be huge in making sure that there's like long-lasting things in place to help with the mental health and mental illness epidemic. Right, and I think a lot of people don't immediately think about policy changes as a way to help mental health. Right. Because I know that that's not something I really ever thought of, but at the end of the day, Having policies and governmental like regulations on things is what every cause needs. Like, yeah, we need these regulations and these protections in play so that it doesn't get worse. Like, we weren't paying much attention to mental health before this generation, right? And so, we need the government to be supportive of that so that the next generation and the generation after that will continue to prioritize yeah and then also it won't be as much of a fight and there won't be this huge spike in cases right so thinking about how we can implement mental health policies into effect as Haley and I were talking about our generation has done a really good job about being open with mental health Mm -hmm. and 
one of the huge first steps is trying to reduce the stigma around mental illness because that'll make people more confident to talk about it and talk about it with people of power. Absolutely. Yeah, you can't talk about it if you are uncomfortable with the topic. And if you can't talk about it, then people in the government can't address it with a policy. Right. There's also a different approach beyond Gen Z. You can look at it from more of a public health approach, which this will really help reframe it as more than just an individual issue. So it'll be something that affects entire communities and public health can really push this out to everybody. Yeah. And I think seeing it as a public health issue will also help destigmatize it because we care so much about physical health in society. There's no reason for us not to care about everyone's mental health as well. Some potential strategies for using it as a public health approach would be making sure that there's like universal screenings and that everybody has equal access to treatment. Yeah. And when I think of universal screenings, the first thing that pops in my head is like in elementary school when you used to be called out of class, like get your eyes tested and your hearing. hearing. (laughs) Right. I don't see why there's any reason we can't start to implement mental health screenings of some sort to make sure that students are getting the treatment they need if they do have some sort of mental illness. Right, because at this point, in the past, we saw physical health as more important than mental health, but now that people are so open about it, we're starting to see, like, them get on the same wavelength. And so if we're able to screen all these kids for physical issues, we should be able to screen them for mental issues as well. Right, and the physical issues and diagnoses that we focus on are things that affect them in the classroom like their eyesight or their hearing but mental health affects you in the classroom just as much right it can affect your ability to focus or concentrate during class absolutely especially if kids are having behavioral issues it would Mm -hmm. be nice to be able to know what is at the root of that right And all of that leads into another strategy, which is prioritizing research. So the more information that we have on the topic, the better informed we can be in making sure that the policies are effective, but also manageable. Right. And it can be hard to do a lot of research on mental health because it does vary from like person to person. Right. However, if we are putting the effort in to try to gather as much information as possible, then we'll be able to know what the next steps are. Yeah. And lastly, obviously, we are a civics and politics podcast, so we'd be crazy not to bring in the government in some way or (laughs) politics. So in terms of politics, this needs to become a bipartisan issue. It shouldn't be something that's only pushed by Republicans or only pushed by Democrats. The best and most efficient way to really attack this problem is if both parties are addressing it the same. Right. And people need to understand that mental illness doesn't discriminate based on like mental illness doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. It can affect everybody. And so one party shouldn't have to be pushing it more than the other. It should be equal with both parties. They should both be trying to support it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So I really think it would be beneficial for us to think about different ways that this can be implemented into law. And there's no better person than bringing on a guest who's worked in mental health law his entire life. Right. All right. So today we have a very special guest joining us all the way from Indiana. We have Jay Chaudhry with us. And 
Jay is the director of the Indiana Division of Mental Health and Addiction, which is responsible for overseeing support for individuals with mental health and substance abuse disorder challenges. Previously, he was a managing attorney and director of medical legal partnerships for Indiana Legal Services, where he built numerous medical legal partnerships dedicated to addressing health-harming legal needs for low-income groups. He is also the chair of the Indiana Behavioral Health Commission and an Aspen Institute Ascend Fellow. He also received the 2020 Distinguished Service Award from IU Moyer School of Law, where he graduated with his JD in 2009. So thank you so much for joining us all the way from Indiana. It's great to have you on the podcast today. If you just want to share a little bit more about you, and then we'll jump into some of our questions about mental health law. All right, yeah, thanks, Kennedy. Uh, happy to be here. I'm happy to just jump right in if, if, if you'd Absolutely. like to do that. Yeah, we'll get right into it. All right, so last time we talked, you said you didn't necessarily have a direct path into your current career. How did you find yourself working in the field of mental health law? Yeah, so I graduated in 2009 from law school, which some of your listeners may remember was the kind of height of the Great Recession. Jobs were not exactly falling off trees. And I was interning at a nonprofit called Indiana Legal Services at the time, which is a civil legal aid organization, which provides free civil legal services for low-income people. And I liked to work. I wanted to work there. And they said, well, we don't have any money, but if you find some money somehow, like a grant or something, we'll see if we can match it. And so as luck would have it, one of my law school classmates was furloughed from a big law firm, and she was working kind of part-time for the local safety net hospital. And so they were interested in starting a medical legal partnership, and we kind of got together and put uh, put together a few grant applications and one was funded and you know they kept their promise they matched that money and I ended up working my first year out of law school as a two-thirds paralegal one-third attorney because that was the, the only way they could fit me in and one thing kind of led to another and got another grant and another bigger one and then you know got a really big grant and then we convinced the healthcare system to start funding us and o- over the next you know 10 years or so I ended up building about eight different programs around the state of Indiana sort of developing a, a national reputation and specifically in the areas of medical legal partnerships for people with mental health and SUD challenges. And about three years ago, uh, I got the opportunity to jump over to the kind of policymaking state space. And so that's been where I've been. That's awesome. It's great that you were able to kind of create your own program in a sense. You know, you were able to fill a gap that they didn't have, and now you have a national presence. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that is a super interesting journey that you went through. And as you said, you're kind of leaning more into the policy end of mental health law. So mental health policy is becoming a much more widely discussed topic. And why do you think this is? I think there's lots of different reasons. I think, you know, number one, first and foremost, it's been it's been a long time coming and uh, an evolution. And I think the way these things work is if, if you've heard, you know, the sort of story, the, the quote about bankruptcy, it happens, you know, a little bit at a time than all at once. And that's kind of similar to how I think we're, we're, we're in a space right now with, with mental health in particular. There's been kind of a steady increased conversation, breaking down of silos and stigmas. And then I think the pandemic really kind of brought it to the fore. And I think that a, a lot of times, you know, great, resets in society or, or really big disruptions in society 
can lead to, you know, kind of a sea change and and seemingly unrelated topics. And I think with mental health, that's what's happened. And I would actually credit a lot of it to people in your generation, because I think that more than ever, I've noticed, and I think other people have noticed that that younger people nowadays, I think, are really open about talking about their mental health. And as that's happened, it's kind of broken down those stigmas. And, you know, I think uh, as that stigma has been broken down, I think that sort of trickled into the policy realm. And I think that we also, we can get into the history if you, if you want, and we've done mental health and mental health policy wrong for a long time. And it's sort of like a long overdue moment of reckoning because, you know, the, the promise that, that was uh, delivered by President Kennedy when he signed, you know, the Community Mental Health Center Act in 1963 was never really followed through with uh, any kind of like all of society commitment. I think that we're, we're recognizing now that we need that commitment in order to get where we need to get. I totally agree. And I think that this new generation, Generation Z, has been super open about their mental health. And I think in the future, we're going to see even more changes and more transparency about mental health law because our generation is very comfortable talking about mental health. Right. And I also like the point that you brought up about how even though policies were kind of brought up in the past, no one ever really went full in and fully committed to those policies and improving mental health. So I think that's obviously huge in actually making sure that the policies are effective. Absolutely. Now, I want to go back. You mentioned the pandemic's effect on mental health policy. How has mental health policy and more generally behavioral health evolved since the pandemic? Well, I think you have to start before the pandemic, you have to start, I think, in the, the mid-2000s with the opioid epidemic. And what happened there was, I think, quite frankly, the issue of drug addiction and overdoses and all those things, I think they reached a new population. And a lot of time, a lot of people who had been able to kind of conveniently ignore it as something that was happening somewhere else, all of a sudden found overdoses and, 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 and drug, drug addiction kind of in their backyard. And that sort of started the process, I think, of, of people wanting to do, find a new approach. And we, we, we can't talk about that without talking about the inequity of it. I think that, you know, historically, addiction had been seen as sort of like a black and brown problem, and therefore that the people in charge were able to ignore it. But then I think when it start, started having a white face, the policy changed. And to be clear, it changed in a good direction, right? It changed in the direction of compassion and, and treatment and recognizing that it's a disease. And I think that really kind of primed the pump for this corresponding shift into new attitudes about mental health. Because if you look at the literature, you know, mental health and addiction are sort of inextricably intertwined. You know, most people who end up having or suffering from a substance use disorder you know, have have mental health challenges. They may not have a full-blown, you know, severe mental illness diagnosis, but they do have mental health challenges. So I think that the shifting conversation around the opioid epidemic started this. And then I think with the pandemic, what happened was, you know, everything was disrupted. All of our lives were thrown, you know, completely upside down and, and things were chaotic. And, and there was all kinds of mental health challenges, you know, that people that maybe had been hold, barely holding on all of a sudden, you know, weren't able to make it. And, and I think we were really primed for that conversation because of the attitudes that changed during the opioid epidemic. And so, again, like it sort of happened a little bit at a time. And then all of a sudden at once, it was kind of front and center, like, wow, you know, our mental health is so important and it's so fragile. And, you know, we need to talk about it, number one, but number two, most importantly, I think we need to do something different about it. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like a common trend in America is 
to wait until an issue can't be ignored to do something about it, which is kind of unfortunate, but at least it puts it at the forefront and, like, forces us to do something. Right. It makes us take action, which we would hope it would come earlier, right. but that's not always the case. I always say, you know, we, we, we love putting out fires. You know, we don't we don't think about preventing that from starting in the first place. Right. Right. So you talked a little bit how it's been difficult to intersect mental health and laws and policies. So why is it so difficult to intersect mental health and law? That's a great question. I think at the outset, I think you have to recognize that when we talk about mental health from a policy standpoint, we're really talking about two separate things, right? We're talking about historically, you know, mental health has been the sort of severe mental illness space, like people that have kind of bipolar with psychotic features or schizophrenia. These are the people that historically had been institutionalized. And so we have that one category of people. And then we also have a separate category of the kind of increasing anxiety and depression and mood disorders and those sorts of things. They're both really important. They both have significant policy implications, but they are kind of two separate things. And I think that there's difficulties with both of them and tensions with both of them in terms of the law. I think from, I'll just kind of give two examples to illustrate that. And so the first one, I, I talked more about the people with severe mental illness, and these are the people that, you know, again, before the 1950s were in, often in institutions for their whole lives, and they were deinstitutionalized as a result of, you know, decades of activism, and, and then ultimately culminating in the, the Community Mental Health Center Act signed by President Kennedy in 1963, with the promise of further community-based care, which never really came. Um, but the, the challenge there, right, is that there are, you know, there are, in fact, you know, people who are so sick, number one, they're so sick that they need, you know, a lot of very kind of hands-on care and treatment, okay? Not necessarily in an institution, but they need, you know, just somebody kind of constantly there. And then one of the symptoms of that disease, right, is not, not recognizing that you have the disease or that you need treatment in the first place. So that's where the notion of like coercive or involuntary treatment comes in. And the reason it's so difficult and the reason that intersection is so hard is because there's no right answer, right? Both sides of the equation have like such kind of good points. Like on one hand, you know, kind of fundamental bodily autonomy is like, it, you could say our most sacred right. And you, you, you know, you saw this conversation pop up during the pandemic with things like masks and vaccination and sort of that, like, you know, government, leave your hands off of me. I have an absolute right to determine, you know, what goes in my body, what treatments I get, what treatments I don't get. And that's, that's a really compelling argument, right? On the other hand, if your disease is such that it leads you to, you know, be sleeping in an alley or you know, defecating on the street or, you know, in general contributing to, 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 to massive societal disorder, you know, there's a compelling argument on the other side too, right? Like, well, yes, you have that, that autonomy, but societally we have an obligation to maintain order and also help people to get help themselves. And so the reason it's so hard is because there's not really a right answer, right, between those two and, you know, where laws kind of fall apart is these hard cases, right? There's a really famous quote by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, hard cases make bad law. And what he meant by that was it's really hard to extrapolate from really complicated individual cases to make kind of more generalized statements of law. And I think that applies across the board when you look at the intersection of mental health and law. Right. And I think it makes it even more difficult that this is like a newer 
discussion point. Like, this has not always been something that we wanted to recognize in America or in the world in general. So I think the fact that there's no right answer and we're just starting to really explore this field just adds extra difficulty between that intersection point. Absolutely. And I'll give you another example that's more related to that second sort of the, the sort of increase in mood disorders and anxiety and depression, especially among young people. That also gets that difficulty and it's related. And you've seen it play out a lot of places around, around the country. And that is, you know, to what extent should parents be involved or, or be involved with their children's kind of medical care, especially if some of the problems stem from issues in the home, right? And again, there's no right answer. Like I'm a parent. I want to know everything that, that that's going on with my kid at school. And I think I have the right to know that, you know, on the other hand, you know, with, with mental health, especially you want children and especially adolescents to be able to seek out care and seek out treatment and in whatever way makes it best for them that may involve not involving the parent. Is, is there a right answer to that? No, but has that become a political kind of hot button issue? Absolutely. And the reason is because again, both sides have good points on that. Right. So speaking of all of these difficulties in finding that correct answer in a situation where there really isn't one, a topic of discussion over the summer especially and beginning of the fall was the 988 suicide and crisis hotline and there's been a lot of concerns regarding the service and its resortment to involuntary treatment so in your opinion how can we find that balance between knowing when involuntary treatment is needed versus consenting to that treatment yeah, absolutely. So for listeners that don't know, 988 has taken over as the new three-digit number for behavioral health crisis response, replacing kind of a hodgepodge of patchwork numbers around the country. And in Indiana, and like a lot of states, we're, we're using the transition of 988 to, to build not only the number, like the hotline, but, all, but, a, but a comprehensive crisis response system in three parts. So the first part would be someone to contact second part is someone to respond and the third part is a safe place for help so someone to contact is obvious that's the 988 call center someone to respond are groups that we call mobile crisis response teams and these are behavioral health focused behavioral health led teams that are are trained to go out into the community and de-escalate folks so that they don't need any kind of further interactions at that time and then for the folks that aren't able to be de-escalated, um, we're creating uh, what are called safe places for help or crisis stabilization centers where people can go be stabilized. And ideally, you know, th that will be the end of their kind of intersection there. So I, I, we completely understand the, 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 the trepidation and the sensitivity involved with, with all this. I, I think that one of the things we say all the time is that we have to earn your trust. Like I, we completely understand why you don't trust us, like the government, the state, like we don't have the best track record in terms of, you know, doing what's right for vulnerable populations. And I think we have to acknowledge and own that. And as far as how we're handling that particular issue, I mean, we have constant kind of client and consumer input into our planning. So we've built that in from the beginning, but most importantly, what we've done in Indiana, I think mean, a lot of states are starting to catch on is we've really doubled down on the importance of peers in crisis response in particular. You know, the, the, the data is starting to show and studies are starting to show that, that the presence of a peer, so somebody with lived experience in the system, is the key to that kind of de-escalation and, and diversion um, response. And so how we're viewing 988 is we're, we're viewing it as the new front door, in some cases, to the behavioral health system. 
And our hope and our vision is, is that it's a front door that leads to kind of more compassionate care instead of the, the current carceral and coercive responses. That's such a great way to explain it. And I like that you guys are breaking it down into, you know, three different groups, essentially, because I feel like the misconception is if you call that number, you're automatically going to be put into involuntary treatment, which clearly isn't the case. It's only if it's absolutely necessary. But I also like that you guys are recognizing the importance of, like you said, peers. I know, especially for Gen Z, we tend to reach out to our friends before we reach out necessarily to some sort of healthcare professional. So being able to do both in a sense, like someone that understands what you're going through, but also has that proper knowledge to guide you is so important. Yeah. And to be clear, like these peers are, these peers are trained and right. they're, you know, they're certified. They're not just like any, any person. Yeah. yeah I, think- I think that can be super beneficial for the youth as we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the younger generation, that's been pretty like open about mental health and stuff like that. What is one message that you hope to get across through the work you do, especially towards today's younger people and younger generation? I think keep speaking out about it, keep pushing us, keep challenging us, keep getting as involved as you possibly can and you feel comfortable doing. I mean, we need your voices at the table. You know, they're, 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 these are not, like I said before, these are, none of these are easy. Like, and they're not easy from a systems building standpoint. They're not easy from a political standpoint. They're not easy from even like a philosophical standpoint. This is going to be kind of hard, slow, incremental work. And that's really the only way change, change happens. But that means we need everybody in this for the long haul, right? We, we can't just have this be the flavor of the week or the flash in the pan that followed the pandemic. This needs to be something we're committed to over a period of five, seven, 10 years if we're going to get to where we want to go. So we need everybody here for the long haul. That includes people that are uh, in the younger generation. I totally agree because young people are the future. And so if we are not committed to bringing mental health to the forefront, then it won't be something that continues to be worked on. Yeah, and if we're already committed at a young age, I think we'll just stay committed to it as we go on. And also that'll help the younger generations when we're older just continue to focus on it. Yeah, hopefully. All right, well, we have one more question for you. We have a segment on our podcast called Factor Cap. It's like Gen Z true or false. I'll say a statement, and if you believe it's true or agree with it, you'll say fact. And if you disagree, you'll say cap. And you can kind of elaborate a little bit on your answer if you want. Yeah, and thank you for sending the email or really explaining that to me because I would not have understood it. Totally. It's, <laughs> most of our guests don't, so that's why we clarify. <laughs> so our factor cap is reducing the stigma around mental health can help to push policies through the government more easily. Fact or cap? Can I say both? Sure. Our okay. first so, both answer. <laughs> okay. So I'll explain both. The, the, the fact element of that, I think, is that it does, and the reduction of stigma, I think, brings mental health care squarely into, like, the arena of what policymakers think they should be responsible for, right? Like, it, it, it's because everybody's talking about it because it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's, you know, military or sports teams or you know, whoever, everybody's talking about mental health, that doesn't mean it's on the radar and consistently on the radar of people that make policy. And so that makes it more likely for actual policy to be made, right? Right. The the cap, right, of part of that is the, the flip side of stigma reduction is 
you know, dramatically increase demand for services, which, you know, let's be completely honest, is expensive, right? right. And like it or not, uh, the, the, the price tag associated with any given piece of policy is a factor in whether or not it passes, right? And so, you know, you could see, and we have seen, you know, scenarios, maybe not really recently, but in the not too distant past where the price tag of something ended up tanking what would otherwise be really good policy. And that's something that just, you know, from a, just a dose of like reality standpoint, as much as we love it, you know, this is one priority among dozens competing for a kind of fixed pie. And, you know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'll, I'll actually, I'll say it's wrong, but uh, you know, the reality of it is if and when demand keeps picking up, which is a good thing, because that means more people are recognizing they need help and, and they are seeking that help, um, the price is going to go up and that's going to make policy uh, a little bit more difficult. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it fits the message that we've been getting at this entire podcast that this is a very difficult situation to try and handle and there is no correct straight answer. So all that being said, thank you so much for joining us. This is obviously a very important topic to us and we were so excited to have you join us and share your expertise. Yeah, thanks for having me. Since we are on the topic of mental health, let's look at it from a bit of a brighter standpoint. I know for me personally and Haley here, dogs can really help with mental health. Absolutely. So, as you know, on this podcast, we have our pup day. So, Haley, give us a little pup day on Sport Gray. Yeah, so as you said, Sport Gray, he is the light of my life. I kid you <laughs> not. You come back from a hard day at class and Sport's little face is just sitting there ready for cuddles. Makes it all better. Of course. There are so many people that they just, their day is made when they see Sport. Sport is literally the emotional support dog of this entire campus. Yes, agreed. But other than that, <laughs> updates with Sport are he just came home with me for the weekend since we are home for Thanksgiving break. So he got to see my family again, which obviously he gets super excited about. And now he is with my roommate's family back home at her house in Zanesville for Thanksgiving. So he's had a lot of traveling. He's spending Thanksgiving at home with the family. He is. It's yes. adorable. I know. I wish he could be with me, but he can't because my sister's dog doesn't like him. So oh, that's funny. I know. It's very <laughs> unfortunate, but it's okay. Sport loves Brianna's family and her dogs, so he'll have a blast. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Uncap It. It was a topic that hit very close to home for Kennedy and I, and we are very excited to share this episode with you guys. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you guys subscribe to the podcast and check out Uncap It and ICAP on our social media. Our handles for Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter are ONU underscore ICAP with two Ps. We'll see you guys next time. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening.